Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. Bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter Syrian Civil War episode 15. Wow. How you doing there, buddy? Um, fine and dandy like sour candy. This is going to be the last time I talk to you before, but I'm just going to go ahead and call the hug. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, good to know. I'll start girding my loins. Sure. Whatever. Yeah. All right, so I mentioned at the end of last episode, uh, episode 14, we talked about how the um, towards the end of July, the uh, 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 Syrian military uh, formally declared the formation of the Free Syrian Army or the Syrian Free Army. Yay. And uh, meanwhile, in Libya, NATO got involved to intervene in their civil war started by the Arab Spring. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about that because it, it's relevant. Yeah. I just want to throw out that um, that the force that the NATO is going to use, um, it's obviously a United Nations Security Council. Um, excuse me. It's a military force that is going to, their job is to enforce the resolutions 1970 and 1973 concerning the uh, Libyan civil war. So again, that was adopted in February and March of 2011. So the Security Council makes a decision. They have a military force, obviously made up of an international force, and their job is to go in there and to enforce what these people have decided. And after Cam talks about his and we get to the end of Gaddafi, I'll give you an idea of exactly the type of close coordination these various countries had in taking out this individual. Mm. Well, I want to talk about sort of the difference between Libya and Syria. Why did NATO get involved in Libya in 2011, but not in Syria Mm. in 2011? Ooh. Um, Gaddafi had plastic surgery... So therefore, it was very West... No, I'm making this shit up. I have no idea. Tell me why. <laughs> so the uh, NATO forces were predominantly Americans, British, French, and Canadian. They were involved in an operation called Operation Unified Protector. Oh, that sounds noble. I always love the uh, names of their operations. That's the job I want to get. The job yes. to come up with names of operations. Operation Unicorn and Sunflowers. Operation Smelly Bum Dick Pants. That's what we're going to be calling it. Right out. Right out. Well, the big difference, there are a couple of theories on why they got involved in Libya and not Syria. One theory is Libya has oil. Mm. Libya... uh, I don't think that's important. No, of course it's not important. We know that Syria doesn't have oil. Libya has oil. 
Libya has a lot of fucking oil, actually. Uh, oh. It has shit ton of oil. I think that's the, <laughs> if, the if actual term. It has the largest proven oil reserves in Africa. Oh, my God. And as consequently, is very rich or has been very rich as a result of that. Shit ton of oil. Right. And... Uh, you know, in the in the 80s, it was one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Its GDP per capita was higher than a lot of developed countries. Um, and then it got hit with UN sanctions and they had the Lockerbie bombings and all of that kind of stuff happened, which was blamed on Gaddafi. There's a lot of debate um, as to whether or not Gaddafi or Libya had anything to do with the Lockerbie bombing. But I don't want to get into that now. That's another whole other sure. issue. Um, so one theory is Libya has oil, Syria doesn't. Another common theory, and this has been prominent in conspiracy theory circles for the last six or seven years, but mm-hmm. has recently been bolstered with some uh, 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 semi-quasi-official documents is that Gaddafi was trying to introduce uh, a new currency into Mm. Africa, particularly a new currency for buying and selling oil, the gold dinar. And this was a major threat, particularly to the French. Yeah. And so they had to stop him. How the fuck could he possibly think that would be a good idea that nobody would react? Yeah, well, you know... He'd been around a long time, Gaddafi. Um, and it, I guess you know, he wanted weathered... that to come to an end. <laughs> well, he'd weathered a lot of storms, including the whole fucking uh, Lockerbie bombing thing. And at this point, he was he, his reputation had, to a large extent, been rehabilitated mm-hmm. in um, the, in the West. You know, post nine eleven. Uh, he sort of, you know, went through some some a bad period, but then came out, came out of it, and you know was turning. I remember turning up in New York to speak at the United Nations and having to hang it, put a tent up somewhere. He refused to uh, stay in hotels, or the hotels wouldn't have him. One or the other, I can't remember. Oh God! Anyway, yeah. get yeah. back to this gold dinar thing because I'm, uh, you know, if you like me, kind of roll your eyes at this stuff, which is I did. <laughs> Whenever I hear, oh, it's about petrodollars or it's about alternative currencies, my initial instinct is to roll my eyes and think it's crazy conspiracy talk, but then stuff, you know, (laughs) tell you what. Stuff gets out. Yeah, in the last few years, you know, there was, oh, the NSA are listening to everything we say. Everyone thought that was conspiracy talk until Edward (laughs) Snowden leaked his documents. They're like, oh, fuck, conspiracy theorists were right. Um, In an email from Sidney Blumenthal, do you know who he is? Um, I remember he was part of the White House with uh, with with Bill. Yeah, he I was the name. former aide to Bill Clinton when he was president, uh, longtime mm-hmm. confidant to the Clintons, including Hillary. Formerly employed by the Clinton Foundation, uh, one of the key advisors to Hillary Clinton during her uh, presidential campaign. Mm. Um, he wrote her an email uh, in 2011 
entitled France's Client and Gaddafi's Gold. He wrote her a lot of emails, but this is just one email. Yeah. This is one okay. that was released by WikiLeaks. Um, Uh-oh. Mm. And in it, we learn that he had learned from his sources that the French president at the time, Nicolas Sarkozy, right-wing conservative French uh, president, right, was... Yeah, hot wife, was leading the attack on Libya. And according to Blumenthal's email to Hillary Clinton, there were five specific purposes that Sarkozy had for the attack on Libya. Uh, One, to obtain Libyan oil. Sure. Two, to ensure French influence in the region. Three, to increase Sarkozy's reputation domestically. Four, to assert French military power. And five, to prevent Gaddafi's influence in what is considered Francophone Africa. I would, I would retort, what French military power? No, I'm joking. But yeah, now, all, and all that makes great sense. He's a leader. He knows the next election's coming up, get their oil for money, and uh, make himself look good, exert French influence in the region. I mean, what's, it's, all, it's all to the good. What now could possibly you'll, go wrong? You'll note that humanitarian, preventing humanitarian crisis <laughs> didn't turn up in those that list at all. That was going to be on the follow-up email. Oh, I forgot that one. Look, I knew... I said I had a six-point plan, and yeah. uh, I could never remember I the sixth t- point. I copied, but I didn't paste. I had written it all out. <laughs> it's like... Who's the fucking Texas presidential candidate in the last election who had a three-point plan? Who's the oh, dumb uh, sh- Rick Perry. Rick Perry. Is it Rick Perry? I got a three-point plan. What is it, Governor Perry? Number one, <laughs> bomb shit. Number two, uh, number three, um, no, I can't remember. It's very clear, my three-point plan. I can't remember what the three yeah. points are. And but, he, couldn't uh, remember the, he couldn't remember the different departments. And what was it? I can't remember. Shit. He forgot several of the different departments. Anyway, yeah. yeah, not a brainiac. But he wears glasses, so he looks smart. It's okay. Now, according to, again, Sidney Blumenthal, the military campaign was designed to squash plans Gaddafi had to use $7 billion in gold and silver that he had amassed to Damn. create a new American currency. That do it. The gold dinar. Now, he had a plan to introduce this into Africa and make it a single African currency made from gold. Right. And the French were worried that this was would undercut the currency that they guaranteed, or well, the French Treasury no guaranteed, shit. known as the CFA right. franc, <clears throat> that was widely used in West Africa and acted as a continuing sort of strong link between France and many of its right. former colonies in Africa. Quick question. Why did why wouldn't he call it the Gaddafi? I know, like right? Were, yeah. If Dinar, fuck Dinar, if you were to create a currency, what would you call it? And how do you spell Gaddafi's name, uh, Ray? Gaddafi, do you want the correct spelling? Yeah. Uh, I think it's D. I don't know how many D's and how many F's there are. G A D. Okay, let me. A F F I. Let me save you and we'll let Leo 
tell us. Margaret, please call the editor of the New York Times crossword and tell him that Gaddafi has spoke with an H and two Ds and isn't a seven-letter word for anything. Is this for real or is this just funny? Apparently it's neither. Yes, 17 across is wrong. You're spelling his name wrong. What's my name? My name doesn't matter. I'm just an ordinary citizen who relies on the Times crossword for stimulation. And I'm telling you that I've met the man twice, and I've recommended a preemptive Exocet missile strike against his Air Force, so I think I know how to... They hang up on me every time. That's almost hard to believe. (laughs) (laughs) I've forgotten about that. I totally forgot about that. That's the very first episode, man, of West Wing, I think. Uh, Leo telling him how to spell Gaddafi. I've met the man twice and I've recommended Exocet missile strikes on his bases. I think I know how to spell his name. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Rest in peace, John Spencer. What a great actor. Yeah. Yep. I listened to an interview with him recently uh, from a couple of years into the West Wing. Just, yeah, terrific, terrific uh, guy, yeah. terrific actor. Anywho. I just, mm, yeah. Hold on, I just have to mention the, the one line that I remember him. He was he was talking to to the, oh God, the guy who was in charge of communications and Rob Lowe and whatever. And he goes, and he was about to talk to the entire staff. You know, it's a very large staff. And he goes, the trick to the staff is you got to know how to talk to people. You got to be able to relate. So he starts to meet. He goes, okay, everybody, shut up. I fired more people than you before breakfast. All right, <laughs> shut up. So that's just how he would talk to people. Mm. Like, yeah. Now, as you said, uh, Sarkozy was coming into an election. Uh, and, and and at the moment, at the time, I think he had a huge disapproval rating. Um, so yeah, we all know that if your approval rating is low, you create a war. That's a right. tried and true tactic around the world. Foreign uh, elements. Sorry. Foreign elements. You just bring up some foreigners are trying to hurt us. We got to rally together. We got to rally mm. around the flag. Close ranks, support each other. Just the same bullshit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, now, unfortunately for Sarkozy, if he thought an overseas war would would bolster his chances in the election, turned out he was wrong. Um, oh. Even though the intervention in Libya was pretty popular in France. Uh, his approval rating continued to dip, and he lost his re-election bid the next year to Francois Hollande. Well, just like the first Bush. I mean, he had a he had a ninety-two percent approval rating. Election comes along, slightly, you know, comes in second place. So you can have a war, but sometimes people are looking for other things as well. Which Bush? The first Bush. Oh, the first Bush. He had a ninety-two percent approval rating. Really? Yeah, after 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 the war. Wow. It was 92 because there was a, I remember an editorial cartoon. He's laying in bed and there's a dream bubble above his head. And it just says, come on, just 8% more. (laughs) Uh, So, I mean, my point with all of that is, uh, you know, NATO was getting involved in one of these Mm -hmm. countries, but not in Syria. And the reasons for it, it's still too early to tell. Like, we won't know the real reasons of what really went on for 50 years after stuff is released under Freedom of Information Act. But what we do know is at least one of the aides to Hillary Clinton was suggesting that it had to do with Libyan oil, uh, Sarkozy trying to look tough, and this 
problem with Gaddafi getting ready to introduce his own currency. So that's, I mean, that may still be crazy conspiracy theory stuff, but Sidney Blumenthal was reporting it to Hillary Clinton. Right. And, so it couldn't have been too crazy. And as far and he didn't say this is crazy talk. Don't, don't you know, just take this with a grain of salt. Yeah. But and and as far as we know, none of the reply emails back to him said that's crazy either. But uh, so that, that, that it was at least uh, officially understood at that level that it was a concern, yeah. particularly to the French. Now, on, on the 19th... Sorry, did you want to say something? I, I, I was just going to say, I was just thinking about it. We can talk about this later. If you're 19 years old and you're listening to this show, we are get, you we are putting you way ahead of the curve of stuff that you'll learn in your 30s, 40s, and 50s. But anyway, another lesson you should learn is if you're thinking about starting your own currency, please don't. You're going to piss someone off who's a lot more powerful than you, and they have 500-pound bombs, or they know guys that do. So work the system from within. That's all I wanted to say. Oh, look, if you're... Teenager, you you know you you're just going to create your own cryptocurrency, man. You're going to create the next Bitcoin. <laughs> Bitcoin. <laughs> Give yourself a fake name. Do it all, you know, encrypted online. No one will know who you are until they do, and then you get a job. Um, okay. Now, on the 19th of October, so pushing forward a couple of months later, again the media were reporting large crowds of Syrians rallying in support of the Assad government. Uh, mm-hmm. across Syria. Robert Fisk, who was in Damascus at the time, estimated 200,000 people there alone, just in one city. Right. Now, he believed they weren't being coerced, that uh, they were genuinely worried that their country was devolving into a sectarian war. And then Gaddafi was murdered. Jeez. Now, two days I- before he was captured... Yeah. Uh-huh. Hillary Clinton, or La Clinton, as Fisk always refers to her in his reports, which I like, La Clinton, said to the media, while in Libya, two Libyans, we hope he can be captured or killed soon that you don't have to fear it, so that you don't have to fear him any longer. Damn. And then, bingo, NATO bombs his runway convoy and uh, and uh, he's hauled from the sewage pipe where he was hiding, wounded, and is killed live on camera. Yeah. And then Hillary Clinton famously laughed and said, we came, we saw, he died. Fuck. <laughs> That's, I'd forgotten about that. Shit. She was Secretary of State of the United States in the Obama That's administration. Cool. We came, we saw, he died. Now, here is the point. Right. In an age where America routinely assassinates its enemies, the Clinton at least acknowledged the truth. And this was fairly right. remarkable. Normally, the State Department or the White House would have churned out the usual nonsense about how Gaddafi yeah. or bin Laden or whoever must be brought to justice. And we all know right. what that means. Yeah. But usually they obfuscate all of this. But here she was publicly calling for the murder of an enemy. And paraphrasing Caesar. She was, wow. <laughs> After the event, yeah. Damn. Now, according to journalist Shirin Sadegi, what Clinton said is actually against the law in the U.S., 
and not some kind of bullshitty United Nations law and inverted commas or legal standard, but a real actual law. State-sponsored assassination is actually illegal according to the laws of the United States itself. Gerald Ford signed into law EO 11905 on on February 18th, 1976, where it was illegal for the US government to directly or indirectly assassinate people. Mm-hmm. Now, before that, the US government had been doing that all the time, constantly. Uh, and I think a lot of people, including me, would argue that they have continued doing it after that. They've just been yeah. a little bit more surreptitious about it. They do it through proxies or they do it, you know, uh, yeah. using sort of dark ops that no one can, f- has, there's no oversight of. But And here's Hillary balls out. Balls out. Now, in Section 5, subsection G of EO 11905, it clearly states, no employee of the United States government shall engage in or conspire to engage in political assassination. Now now that you... Yeah. Go, say. I was just going to say, just on that very thing, I would just like to read um, where uh, Qaddafi gets wounded before he goes down uh, underground to hide. Uh, I, I just find this fascinating. So it's 1.30 uh, a.m. local time, October 20th, 2011. It's Gaddafi, his army chief, his uh, chief of security, and a group of loyalists who are attempting to escape um, the fighting that's going on in a convoy of 75 vehicles. Uh, a Royal Air Force reconnaissance aircraft. What? No, I was just... I was just... Uh, oh. Uh, gearing up a video for when you finish. Sorry. Okay. All right. So so uh, so they're so they're attempting to leave. There's rumors that he's to the south. There's rumors that he's that he's to the west. No one really knows where he's at. So a Royal Air Force reconnaissance aircraft spots the convoy moving at high speed, and uh, some NATO forces intercept a satellite phone call made by Qaddafi. Remember that part. NATO aircraft are sent, and they fire on 21 of the 75 vehicles, and they destroy one of them. A U.S. Predator drone operated from near Las Vegas comes in and fires um, some more missiles at the convoy, uh, hitting their targets about three kilometers to two miles west of Surti. Now, moments later, a French fighter jet comes in and it joins in on the bombing. Uh, the NATO bombing um, immobilized m- much of the convoy and it killed dozens of his followers. So following the first strike, some 11 vehicles broke away from the main group and kept moving south. A second NATO airstrike damages or destroyed some of these vehicles. According to the Financial Times, rebel units on the ground then uh, shot at the convoy as it was going by them. According to their statement later, NATO was not aware at the time of the strike that Gaddafi was in the convoy. NATO stated that in accordance with the Security Council Resolution 1973, it does not target individuals but only military assets that pose a threat. But as I said earlier, they found uh, they came across a satellite phone call made by Qaddafi, which is why they knew he was in the convoy and went after it with everything from Helen back. So that whole thing about that we don't take out leaders is, in my opinion, bullshit. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to cover that. Here is Hillary Clinton. So, I mean, that is the land of unconfirmed. Yes, we came... We saw, he died. <laughs> did it have anything to do with your visit? No, oh, I'm sure it did. 
That's not funny. I'm going to play that again. So, I mean, that is the land of unconfirmed. Yes, we came, we saw, <laughs> he died. <laughs> did it have anything to do with your visit? No, oh, I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. She's laughing about him being killed. Now, I don't have any love for Gaddafi, but... Uh, sure. You know, again, at this point, America's not even pretending that uh, they don't do this stuff. She was just, you know, and, and she may not have given an order for the assassination, but uh, she certainly called for it. We hope. Yeah. This is a bit like the thing that's been in the and media she's recently. Popping. Yeah. She's in the popping his death. In the media recently with uh, James Comey's uh, testimony to Congress about his meetings with Trump, where Trump said to him, I hope you can uh, see, see, your way clear. <laughs> see your way clear to dropping the thing against uh, the general, the investigation. Mm-hmm. Now, the the analysis of that that I've read says that everyone knows that when somebody in a position of power to you says, we hope, it's basically an order. It's a request. Absolutely. Get it done. I hope Absolutely. you can see your way clear to... Exit. She says, yeah. we hope Gaddafi can be captured or killed soon. That's a that's basically conspiracy to uh, act in a yeah. political assassination. Yeah. But, Jesus. you know, not only did yeah. she get away with it, she laughed about it afterwards and then ran for president and then was yeah. indignant that she didn't win president. Yeah. I've always been against uh, the, uh, the great, not the great, I shouldn't say that, the Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Oliver Wendell Holmes, excuse me, it's our three, who said, and this has been used by so many people over the years, and this is when America was very young, he said, my country, right or wrong. And this is one of the, and you've just got to, at some point, you've got to get out of that kind of thinking. And it's okay. you can still be loyal to your country. You can still love your country, whatever the fuck you want to call it, and still disagree when your country or some part, part of it does something wrong. And what that was, was wrong. Well, I guess that's a matter of opinion, but, you know, let's just yeah, say that she... that's just me on my soapbox. Let's yeah, just say right. she did it. Whether or not it's right or wrong, I'm not going to get into it. But it's calling for assassination. Right. Now... This shouldn't be any surprise to any of us. I mean, under Obama, two high-profile political assassinations had already been paraded in the national and international media in 2011. The government's assassination of Osama bin Laden. Most Americans found that to be emotionally justifiable. But, you know, if you look at it on the surface, despite variations in the official story... An unarmed man was attacked in his home in front of his wife and children, not given a trial, not given a chance to, uh, you know, have a defense attorney, uh, was basically shot point blank and tipped into the water before anyone could even have a look at his body. Now, there are variations of the story. He picked up a gun, that kind of stuff. But basically, a bunch of armed soldiers went into a private residence uh, and assassinated the guy. Was there any kind of, I don't want to use the word trial, but any kind of official decision or judgment made that said, if you find him, you can kill him? Because these soldiers are just doing nothing more than carrying out orders in that regard. In that oh, it was, regard. It was a, an operation, man. They were sent there to find him. In, well, they knew, they believed they knew he was in the house. 
They were right. sent to go to the house and kill him. That was their job. Yeah. Right. But someone had to say to them, if you find him, you will kill him. Yeah. Not you will arrest him. You will whatever. So I'm just saying, was there any kind of what came before? I would love to love to know what came before that order was issued. Because you, you can't just say, oh, it's a no brainer. Kill him. If you see him, there's got to there should be a process. And whether no, we see it or not. Well, I'm sure. I'm, yeah, I'm sure there's some sort of process. I and mean, we know that Obama had a kill list. Which means mm-hmm. that Trump probably has a kill list. So think about that for a Obama's second. Obama's on that list. Uh-huh. That's pretty scary. <laughs> um, whether or not you think bin Laden was a good guy or a bad guy, or whether or not you think he was responsible for 9-11 or not, and let's remember that after 9-11, when he was first asked about it, he said, no, complete surprise to us. I'm glad it happened, but we had nothing to do with it. And then later mm-hmm. on, supposedly, he took responsibility for it. Uh, in a series okay. of videos. So who knows what to believe. But whether or right. not those videos were authentic or the translation, I don't know. The soundtrack was authentic, I don't know. But anyway, um, he didn't get a trial. In in civilized nations, everyone, regardless of you, if I'm a mass murderer and I go out and shoot 50 people, uh, I still get a trial. Uh, mm-hmm. He didn't get a trial. Anyway. Uh, Not only Bin Laden, and even if you think that was fine, the other one that was high profile in 2011 was Anwar al-Awlaki. He was a US-born citizen. Oh. The first American citizen to be hunted and killed without trial by his own government since the Civil War. Damn. He was an American uh, Yemeni imam and Islamic lecturer. He was uh, imam at a mosque in a place called Falls Church, Virginia. Yep, I know where that's at. How far is that from you? Uh, hour, hour and a half. Right, not far, up the road. Yeah, oh, yep. Uh, he was the imam there in 2001 and uh, apparently preached to three of the men who ended up being 9-11 hijackers, who were Al-Qaeda members. Uh, And in April 2010, uh, President Obama placed Al-Awlaki on a list of people whom the CIA were authorized to kill, his kill list, uh, and which they did. They they droned him uh, in 2011. No trial, uh, not brought to justice, just droned. And then two weeks later, his son... Abdulrahman Al-Awlaki, who was 16 years old, an American citizen, also killed Damn. by a U.S. drone strike. What was the supposed justification for that, that he was in on it with his father, that he worked with his father, I guess? Uh, I think he was just nearby some other guys they were going after, yeah. Oh, gotcha. Damn. Now, uh, the father, in this case, Al-Awlaki, his existence on the kill list was so well known that a year earlier in 2010 his father hired a civil rights lawyer in the united states to try and get his son's name removed from the u.s government's kill list obama's killers um al-waki funnily enough or not uh you know he was a fairly popular islamic preacher after 9-11 uh 
and uh, you know was was interviewed in a lot of media. Went to the White House, gave a lot of speeches on Islam, jihad. Um, but uh, after his assassination, has become even more influential. If you strike me down, Darth, I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> right. Um, if you Google his name now in YouTube, a you're going to find you know 40 50 60,000 results of people talking about him and his legacy and uh using his assassination as justification for jihad second if you google that you'll probably have agents on your doorstep within half an hour so i don't recommend yeah, it i'm so just don't, saying don't. if you do don't do that don't do it yeah yeah. Don't blame us. Is what I'm saying. If you do it, you don't blame us. You didn't yeah. hear it from us that you should do that. Anyway, right. yeah, he's he's become um, sort of uh, inspiration. His martyrdom. So there you go. That's I think a good case example. You take out one of these guys and uh, you create fifty thousand more. Right. Now, and on a Decem- side note, mm. I'm sorry. Just on a side note, for those of you who are again young but thinking about running for office one day. Delete all the fucking emails you could possibly find, especially if you said something stupid or offensive, and and check your tongue. Unlike Hillary, um, even though maybe she was trying to impress people, I don't know. But again, for all the young people out there, let us help you live your life. Go back and delete all those freaking emails and delete your history on your browser. You'll think you can thank us later. You really think that's deleting your history on your browser is doing anything, man? Like as, as, as far as. as NSA have already well, got all your damn emails, man. Like, <laughs> good point. I'm trying to help. You can't I'm just trying you can't to help. delete anything. Okay. Just, just well, own don't, it. Don't email. Own it. Just own it. own it. Just own it. That's my advice. <laughs> the CIA comes to my house. Yeah, fucking wrote that. What are you gonna do? Anyway. Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> um, just say it in a podcast like we do. Yeah. I'm sorry. Now, go ahead. I'm in probably. December 2011. Uh, former counterterrorism specialist and CIA military intelligence officer Philip Giraldi mm-hmm. said that uh, already at that stage, unmarked NATO warplanes were arriving at Turkish military bases close to the Syrian border, delivering weapons from the late mm. Muammar Gaddafi's arsenals, as well as volunteers from the Libyan Transitional National Council, who are experienced in pitting local volunteers against trained soldiers, and that French and British Special Forces trainers are on the ground assisting the Syrian rebels, while the CIA and US Special Ops are providing communications equipment and intelligence to assist the rebel cause. So Gaddafi is killed in October, or whenever he actually dies, and by December his weapons, some of his weapons that he bought with his gold or whatever, his dinar, are moved and now being used by Western powers to train Syrian rebels to fight against Assad. That's pretty damn efficient. I'll, I'll give him props for that. Yeah. So That's at cool. least according to Giraldi, uh, again, CIA former CIA officer. Um, by the end of 2011, the French, the British, and the US are indirectly involved in training the rebels, the Free Syrian Army, to overthrow Assad. So Assad's claims 
for the previous eight or nine months that foreign forces were involved in destabilizing the government and the country. If they hadn't been true up until this point, they were probably true by the end of the year. Let, let me let me stop you right here. So it's December of 2011. France, Britain, America gets involved. We got some rebel, rebel uh, Syrian rebels. We've got some uh, Gaddafi weapons. We're helping them with communications. Obviously, we've got more money than God. They've got to be feeling pretty good about their chances because you've had um, you've had ten months of internal violence. It's getting really ugly. Uh, there's a lot of people who are starting to be really angry at Assad, and he's not his father, uh, uh, which we'll get into later. He, he makes some mistakes, uh, but I've I've just got to be thinking that they they think their chances are pretty good of another yet successful coup or uh, or regime change, whatever you want to call it. I mean, they probably had to think that things this the potential here is is got a pretty big upside for us. I ju- I just wonder what they were thinking at the time because now we know it's nothing more than a clusterfuck that's just getting deeper and worse as time has gone on. I just wish I could be there in that mindset at that moment with them. Did did you just say it's been getting worse? Wow. Yes, I'm fucking tired. It's more wow. worse. Wor- worsest. It's becoming the worsest. There's your uh, American education at its finest. You know people. what, Cam? Let me let you in on something. There's an ocean right now that's protecting your ass. But in a couple of days, I'll be in your face, or at least up to your knees. So you might mm. want to fucking punching, watch it. Punching okay? my knees. I'll have to put my knee <laughs> my knee guards on. Oh, that's that's cheating. That's actually <laughs> cheating. <laughs> now, Giraldi, at the time in December 2011, also said Americans should be concerned about what is happening in Syria. It threatens to become another undeclared war like Libya, but much, much worse. Now, You're supposed to say like Vietnam. Well, no, that was a declared war, but this is an undeclared war. America hasn't declared war on Syria, but it has been involved in sending troops, sending money, um, you know, to varying degrees, supporting this side, supporting that side. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Trump just bombed it. I don't believe congress has declared war on syria yet and no, trump trump no. bombed them well so, i heard about that let me let me throw this out to you because i heard this on the news the other day because this has been fascinating me how can the american we are currently bombing at least seven different countries that i know of right now how can the president american president have the legal authority to do this well after as you can imagine after september uh, 11th uh, congress with when the, there's this huge wave of Everybody coming together and patriotism and all that other stuff. They they gave the president a whole bunch of, of a wide range of powers to be able to stuff, including bombing, attacking, that kind of stuff, where he doesn't have to check with Congress. And even Obama wanted them to roll that back. And they said, no, we wouldn't. So the president is, is stuck with it. So someone like Obama uses it, doesn't use it, whatever. Now it's Trump's turn and he's going to use it, but he is completely within his legal rights as a president by the laws given to him by Congress. But again, yeah, there's a, he doesn't have to check with anybody. He can just bomb who the, whoever he wants. And we don't have to be at war with them ever. Yeah. Which is staggering to me. Yeah. So let's break down who has an interest in Syria after all of this. Let's look at some of the interests. There's one that we haven't talked about much yet, but we'll get to them next. 
So let's start with their immediate neighbours. Israel, of course, has been their enemy for 70 years. But as I mentioned earlier, Israel was apparently split fairly early on about the issue of removing the Assad regime. I mean, on one hand, people would like to see a pro-US power in place or a pro-Israeli power. It's hard to imagine. They're not going to get a pro-Israeli power because you can't be an Arab country and be pro-Israeli. But you you can have a detente with Israel like Egypt and the Saudis have had more or less for a long time now because Mm -hmm. they've done a deal with the US. They may speak out against Israel from time to time, but at the end of the day, they're not going to do anything. Um, Also, the Israelis can see what happened in Iraq after the US intervention and think, really, do we need that uh, again so close to us? Uh, I don't think so. And as I said before, the Assads are the devil they know. Now, Iran are on the side of Syria, partly because of the Shia connection between the Alawites and the Shia, but mostly because they're both enemies of Israel and enemies of the U.S. Mm-hmm. So they have, uh, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing okay. going Absolutely. on. In Lebanon, there are still pockets of Syrian support, mostly the March 8 alliance, which is a coalition of various political parties in Lebanon, including Hezbollah. But the rest of the population still resent Syria's occupation of Lebanon and the 2005 bombing, which rightly or wrongly they get the blame for. There are now one and a half million Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Damn. Which is putting strain on the relationship. Now, the Saudis are against Syria, as I've mentioned before, A, because Syria is close to Iran, who are the Saudis' number Mm -hmm. one rival for domination of Islam. Uh, And the Saudis are Wahhabist Sunni, while Iran is Shia. Iraq is mostly Shia, and in theory, they should be aligned with Syria via Iran. But Iraq has been caught up with ISIS um, and their, their struggles there. And uh, they're kind of aligned with the US, of course. So, you know, they, they, they have a lot of complexities there and we'll get to ISIS soon. Turkey and Syria have got a long history of sort of being antagonistic towards each other, sometimes friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Erdogan, who runs Syria. And by the way, uh, if people haven't heard the recent Life of Caesar episode, that we put out. I, I published uh, my interview with a young guy, Arsen Nisanyan, who is from Turkey. Uh, oh, no. Do you hear that? I hear it, yeah. But I can hear you fine, but I do hear it. At first, I thought it was a didgeridoo. Jesus Christ, Harold. He's trying to chop down a tree right outside my window with his chainsaw. Oh, that's going to end well. This could be Cam's last recording. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can hear me. Sorry. I can. Oh, I can see him. Like, what the fuck? Anyway. Yeah, flip. Call him a... Cu- anyway, go ahead. Carol, you stupid old cunt. Cut it out! Let's <laughs> see if we can get through it before he keeps going. Um, okay. Yeah. Now, uh, yeah, Erdogan's had a pretty good relationship with the Assads, um, but uh, they've also had... 
you know, a long history of being antagonistic towards each other. Going back to the original French mandate when the Sanjay of Alexandretta, as it was called, annexed itself to Turkey. The Turkish army marched in and kicked out the Alawite population, who are about 30% mm. of the total. Um, right. And Turkey has a pretty close relationship with the West. They supported the 2003 Iraq invasion. They've been trying to join the EU, etc. So that's added its own um, stresses. Then Erdogan, who, of course, as people will know, I was saying if I did this interview with Arsene on the uh, Life of Caesar show, his father, who wrote something critical about the Erdogan government, got arrested. He's in prison for criticizing the government. Erdogan's a brutal dictator in his own right. Uh, and just uh, recently, a month or two ago, ended basically ended Turkey's century-old experiment with democracy by taking incredible amounts of power. Um, he would love to see Syria weakened, I think, at this point. Be- remember the Qatar-Turkey pipeline that I mentioned in an earlier mm-hmm. episode? Yep. Uh, Qatar-Turkey pipeline. So that's another reason Qatar has been ganging up against Syria uh, recently. <coughs> <clears throat> Sorry, is because Assad said no to that pipeline. Now, Turkey also fields the largest army in NATO and uh, is important in terms of bolstering NATO's southern border with Russia. According to one cable released by WikiLeaks, Turkey still hosts between 50 and 90 US Jupiter nuclear missiles that are each 50 times as powerful as the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Fuck. Uh, Now, you know, the fact that the US has nuclear missiles in Turkey on the border of Russia, pointing at Russia, um, explains a lot of, you know, the conflict in that area. Now, Russia is supporting Syria because they remain one of their last client states in the region. If they abandon Syria to the US... They lose the entire Middle East. Uh, and then, of course, the U.S. is also involved for all of those reasons, trying to play off all of those political alliances, keep the Middle East destabilized. And, you know, they would love to see a pro-U.S. regime in power there. But again, because there's no oil, uh, it's not as vital an interest to them as a place like um, Libya. Right. And then, of course, there's ISIS. Oh, God. And a chainsaw outside my window. All right, let's get into ISIS. I don't know if we'll get all through this, but let's get into it a little bit, I guess. Everyone know, Everyone's heard of ISIS or ISIL or Daesh. Daesh. They go by various names. But let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's, you know, make sure we give some background, particularly for the kids out there that may not have read up yeah. on it. Do you want to say anything before I get stuck in ISIS? Yeah, just just a little bit that I was able to find out. Uh, ISIS, uh, or the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, it considers itself the Islamic Caliphate, a theological empire. Um, and, and just a very uh, general terms, ISIS was born out of the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, when U.S. administrators under Paul Bremer, who we've mentioned before, decided to debathify the Iraqi civil and military services. Hundreds of thousands of Sunnis formerly loyal to Saddam Hussein were left without a job. And as you can imagine, they were pissed. Al-Qaeda then chooses to capitalize on on their uh, anger and establishes Al-Qaeda in Iraq 
to wage insurgency and, and insurgency against U.S. troops in Iraq. Uh, previous to this, Saddam's um, was, Saddam was secular, but his intelligence and military supporters were able to make common cause with the jihadis of um, al-Qaeda. So again, like you said before, you piss off a whole bunch of people, you give them a reason to hate you, you take away their livelihoods, and then someone else comes along with a message of hate, anger, revenge, or whatever, and they're going to be listened to. Yeah. I think the important point there, and it's something that I think a lot of Americans still fail to understand, is that ISIS is the direct result of the American invasion of Iraq and overthrowing mm-hmm. Saddam Hussein. No doubt about it. No, no question. You know, not a conspiracy theory. Whether or not it was deliberately created or not by the Americans is another issue. There are, there are certain elements of conspiracy theory circles that believe America is supporting ISIS because the existence of ISIS enables the continued existence of the U- U.S. military involvement in the region. Um, I don't have any evidence for that, so I'm not going to say that that is uh, credible. But definitely ISIS is the direct result of the U.S. fucking around in Iraq uh, uh, 2003. Not having a plan. Yeah. Now, uh, they are uh, a Salafi jihadist militant group. We've talked about the Salafi uh, in an earlier episode. It's a fundamentalist version of Sunni Islam that wants to kick out colonial interference in Islamic countries and install a caliphate with Sharia law and a fairly Mm -hmm. fundamentalist uh, interpretation of Sharia law. ISIS, as you said, stands for the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. ISIL is the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant and Daesh is uh, the Arabic acronym for those. Now, Mm -hmm. ISIS are Wahhabi, not just Salafi, but Wahhabi the version of Salafi that is part and parcel of the Saudi royal family. And also Ah. Qatar is Wahhabist as well. Right. Qatar. So uh, when you think ISIS, think Saudis. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? They're they're a Saudi... They're they're, they're the Saudi version of of Islam. And they indulge in all the same things the Saudis do, beheadings, all of that kind of stuff. Now, they're an apocalyptic group that believes that the final day of judgment is coming, along with the arrival of the Mahdi, who I talked about in my earlier episodes, basically their saviour. Basically, right. they are what the early Christian movement was in the first century CE, an apocalyptic okay. movement that believes that the final day of judgment is coming in the, you know, the second coming of Messiah and all that kind of yeah. nonsense. It's not. I was trying to figure out how ISIS got powerful, and I come across a couple of things. As we said uh, a couple of minutes ago, feelings of disfranchisement. Uh, Sunni communities in Iraq and Syria felt alienated um, by the Shiite and Alawite-led governments. Um, ISIS obviously played on those feelings. Uh, they were able to partner with uh, the lieutenants of Saddam Hussein's secular regime. Again, uh, that's pretty much a stated fact. Uh, all the chaos in Iraq uh, when the U.S. withdraws. The Iraqi army, uh, when we when we scaled back down, the uh, Iraqi army was well-equipped, but obviously very corrupt, and so ISIS was able to get a, lot, a hold of a lot of those weapons. And, uh, and of course, you've got the good old-fashioned racketeering and extortion. Before ISIS took over control of Mosul, they, uh, they stole from people, they taxed the people, and, of course, the territory under their control had oil, and so they sold oil. So ISIS was 
able to, I think, defy the odds and become a, a very powerful organization just because they had access to some cash and American weapons that were given or sold to the Iraqi government after Saddam Hussein's fall. Mm. And I want to talk a bit about other ways that the U.S. inadvertently created ISIS. Okay. Now, the, the current leader of ISIS is Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. He's a 46-year-old Iraqi who was involved with al-Qaeda. The U.S. government currently has a $25 million reward on his head. He's described by people who know him as a quiet, shy, religious scholar. He has a doctorate. Uh, for Islamic studies in Quranic studies from Saddam University in Baghdad. But in 2003, when the U.S. invaded Iraq and created the power vacuum uh, and everything went to hell, this guy, along with a number Mm -hmm. of others, got picked up in their sweep. Now, um, of course, as you've mentioned, uh, after the U.S. invaded Iraq, they created a power vacuum Saddam, like Hafez al-Assad, had been able to contain the various militant and sectarian forces inside of Iraq. And keeping in mind that the 9-11 attacks were carried out by Saudis, mostly with a couple from the UAE, Egypt and Lebanon, there were zero Iraqis involved in the Mm -hmm. 9-11 attacks. Saddam Saddam had nothing to do with 9-11. Despite what the Bush government claimed at the time, uh, he had nothing to do with al-Qaeda. The day after 9-11, Bush went into the Situation Room and asked the counterterrorism expert uh, director, Richard Clark, to look into a connection between Iraq and al-Qaeda. And I actually have some audio here from Richard Clark. Let's have a listen to this. When I said, Mr. President, we will do that, of course, but we've done it before and rather recently, and the answer has always been no, and it's likely to be no this time, he didn't like that answer, and he got mad. I was in in the room during that time, and he was very adamant about uh, perhaps seeing whether or not Iraq could conduct such an operation against the United States. I was surprised um, when the president left the room. I said, I believe... Secretary Wolfowitz got to him. Now, the first voice there was Richard Clark. As I said, he was Bush's counterterrorism director. The second voice is Lisa Gordon Hegarty, who was on the National Security Council from 1998 to 2003. Mm-hmm. So as you can see, these people are saying Bush came in and basically said, Jeez. you know, look into it. These, these experts said there's, there's no connection between Iraq and al-Qaeda. And he got angry and said, find one, make one. Look, look at it again. Mm. Another, another Einstein in the White House. Now, Paul Wolfowitz, who Hegarty mentioned, was the Deputy, uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense in 2001. He's another one of these guys, along with Cheney and Rumsfeld, who came up under Reagan. And he had a long-term personal issue with the U.S.'s relationship with Saddam. Um, going back to, as everyone knows, you know, the U.S. were very friendly with Saddam in the uh, late 70s and 80s. Uh, I think it was Cheney who met with him, shook him hand. Uh, it might have been Rumsfeld who met with him and shook his hand back then when Rumsfeld was, I think, Secretary of State under Reagan. I'm forgetting my title. I think it was Rumsfeld. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and Wolfowitz never liked that relationship, and so he always wanted to take Saddam out. Now, in researching these episodes, I learned something new. I mentioned it earlier. It's called the Kirkpatrick Doctrine. 
and mm-hmm. it explains something that I've always understood to be the case, but never knew it had a name. It was articulated by an American diplomat, Jeannie, Jeannie uh, Kirkpatrick, in 1979 in an article she wrote entitled Dictatorships and Double Standards. Basically, what she said was that the U.S. should support authoritarian regimes around the world if they went along with Washington's aims and objectives. Her theory was it was better for the U.S. to support repressive dictatorships because authoritarian regimes were capable of evolving peacefully towards democracy. Whereas totalitarian states, evil entities like the Soviet Union or Cuba or Nicaragua, were incapable of change. So, bullshit. Go ahead. The US could talk to right wing dictators, but they couldn't talk to the commies. Now, despite the fact that Roosevelt managed to talk to Stalin and have a relationship <laughs> with him. Let's just ignore that. Uh, yeah, just ignore that. Now, uh, this, you know, has sort of been U.S. geopolitical policy for many decades, and that's what it's yeah. called, the Kirkpatrick Doctrine. This is why the U.S. supported guys like Augusto Pinochet in Chile or Saddam Hussein in Iraq or Manuel Noriega yeah. or the fucking the Saudis or whoever you want. Their theory is right-wing authoritarian dictatorships, we can deal with them because they want to make money and they want power and we know how to deal with it. The socialist regimes don't want what we want and we can't deal with them. So better to have and support, particularly if there's a a fight going on inside of a particular country, right-wing against left-wing, we'll go and support the right-wing guys because the left-wing guys don't want what we want, which is money and power. They want to revolutionize society and make things peaceful and they want unicorns and rainbows. Fuck that shit. We don't want that. We can't deal with them. Like-minded people. Yeah. Jeez. Just because someone sits down and writes this shit out and actually tries to think about it and, and make it into a science... How in the fuck do you use that as a cornerstone of your policy? That's just a leap in my head I can't make. Well, a lot of people bought into it. She ended up being the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations under Reagan and had a huge influence on his foreign policy and pretty much the foreign policy of the American deep state ever since. Of course, she wrote that in 79. Twelve years later, the USSR dissolved peacefully which she said could never happen. Right. And it gave the world Vladimir Putin as a result. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot, anyway, lady. Anyway, back to Iraq. So mm-hmm. h- hundreds of thousands of people were killed during the American invasion, which I should add was supported by the UK and Australia, Poland, the Netherlands, and Peshmerga. Okay. Uh, But the UN declared it was illegal. Nelson Mandela opposed it. The French opposed it. Yes, because that's when we went from calling it French fries to freedom fries. And the Syrians opposed it. Well, yeah. It resulted in 100,000 plus 
dead Iraqis, 15 million displaced. And, of course, the collapse of Saddam's government created this armed resistance that you talked about. There was a power vacuum in Iraq. The US initially tried to install a puppet government, which was run by Paul Bremer, who, by the way, was the former managing director at Kissinger & Associates, the worldwide consulting firm founded by Henry Kissinger, our old friend. Ah. And one of the first things that Bremer did was ban the Ba'ath Party and ban all Ba'ath Party members from working in the government. This led to the removal of somewhere between eighty-five to 100,000 Iraqi people from their jobs, including 40,000 school teachers who had probably just joined the Ba'ath Party in the first place to keep their jobs, like people joined yeah. the Nazi Party in Germany. They all, right, got, requirement. They all got fired. The uh, Iraqis then held elections in 2005... Uh, which led to Jalal Talabani becoming president. Unfortunate mm-hmm. surname when they're fighting the yes. Taliban in Afghanistan. Right. And he was an Iraqi Kurd. Now, remember, Saddam had been brutally uh, oppressing the Kurds for decades. Right. It made him the first non-Arab Iraqi president. Wow. Now, you can imagine how the Sunnis felt about a non-Arab Iraqi president mm-hmm. or the Shia in the country, uh, who are the majority for that matter. Um, yeah. Now, after the US invaded Iraq in 2003, and I know we're over an hour, so we'll wrap up soon, getting back to al-Baghdadi, the guy who runs ISIS. After the invasion in 2003, he helped found a militant group, Jamaya Jayesh al al Sunna Wai Jamaa, the JJAS J. Right. Um, not affiliated with JJ Abrams. He runs another terrorist organization that just makes <laughs> Star Wars and Star Trek episodes. Thank you for the clarification. Yeah. We will uh, get it- now. The JJASJ was led by Jordanian radical Abu Musab al-Zakawi, who I'm sure most people have heard about, al-Zakawi. Mm-hmm. Now, al-Zakawi died in 2006 after the US dropped two 500-pound guided bombs on his house. They didn't think the first one would work by itself? Yeah, you don't want to take chances with these sorts of things, okay. right? And the JJSJ then joined the Mujahideen Shura Council, the MSC, and the merged entity changed its name to the ISI, the Islamic Ah. State of Iraq. So that was where it came from, 2006. Now, getting back to al-Baghdadi, he was arrested, as I mentioned earlier, by the US in February 2004 near Fallujah and was detained Mm -hmm. at Abu Ghraib and Camp Booker. Oh, great. Until he was finally released 10 months later. Although the former commander of Camp Booker, Colonel Kenneth King, claims they held him there from 2005 to 2009. Mm. So there's some debate over how long he was held by the Americans. But after the Abu Ghraib scandal broke, and I want to talk about this before we finish, most of the prisoners were moved to Camp Booker. Now, for folks who don't remember, the scandal broke when it was made public by Seymour Hirsch. Damn. Who I've mentioned many times. He's the guy that broke the My Lai massacre in Vietnam in the 70s. 
Um, mm-hmm. 60s, 70s, 60s, late 60s. Um, and yeah, he also broke the Abu Ghraib scandal in 2004. And this was for kids who weren't around then or people who didn't pay attention, just forgotten. This is when it became public that American army personnel and CIA personnel were involved in the physical and sexual abuse, torture, rape, sodomy and murder of detainees in Abu Ghraib prison. So just one more time. So we we destroy Iraq. Suddenly 100,000 people who have experience no longer have a job and they're pissed off. And now we're going to do something specifically to piss off more of these people in this region. And we wonder why they hate us. Yeah. Okay. But it's for your freedoms. That's why they hate you, Ray. Okay, thank you. It's for your freedoms. Um, Now, Abu Abu Ghraib was in Iraq. Abu Ghraib is a city. It's about 20 miles west of Baghdad. And so, yeah, this prison was set up. And, yeah, it came out that the American personnel there uh, were just doing horrendous things. Now, there was evidence that authorization of the torture had come from high up in the military hierarchy, uh, even allegations that it had come from Donald Rumsfeld, who was the Secretary of Defense. Mm-hmm. Um, but only 17 low-level soldiers were removed from duty and 11 were charged with dereliction of duty, maltreatment, aggravated assault and battery. That's bullshit. None of the higher-ups in the U.S. military or government uh, or CIA got into any trouble over it. Now, one of the people who got demoted was the Brigadier General Janice Karpinski, who was the commanding Mm -hmm. officer of all detention facilities in Iraq. She was demoted to the rank of colonel. And in October 2005, she published a memoir of her experience. It's called One Woman's Army. She claims the abuses were done by contract employees trained in Afghanistan and Guantanamo Bay and sent to Abu Ghraib under orders from Donald Rumsfeld. She said her demotion was political retribution. She insisted she had no knowledge of the abuse and that claims... And she made claims that that particular wing of the prison where the torture was going on was under the control Mm -hmm. of military intelligence... 24 hours a day, so outside of her yeah. purview. I could see that. I mean, if she's in <clears> charge <throat> of the overall system, how she's gonna, how is she going to know what's going on theoretically in one's facility? Well, more than that, she's claiming that this particular wing was not even under her control. Right. It was... Military intelligence. Yeah, contract employees. Basically, we're talking Blackwater. We're talking right. private military that was sent to torture and interrogate prisoners, but that she was the scapegoat who was taken down. I mean, she didn't go to prison either. She was just demoted. Um, Now, Karpinski claimed that Major General Jeffrey Miller, who was sent from Guantanamo Bay, a place called Camp X-Ray, to run the interrogations at Abu Ghraib, told her to treat prisoners like dogs, in the sense that if you allow them to believe at any point that they are more than a dog, then you've lost control of them. 
Jeez. And and she refused, and so private contractors were brought in to do it, and then she was made the scapegoat in retribution for refusing to uh, carry out the orders. Ah, gotcha. Major General Jeffrey Miller, of course, denies ever saying that. Of course he does. Never happened. For the record. Now, of course, all of this was later confirmed to varying degrees by the revelations of what are known as the torture memos. Legal opinions prepared by politicians, including uh, John Yu, or political appointees, including John Yu, who was the office, uh, of, in the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice under Bush. His mm-hmm. memo of March 14, 2003, five days before the US invaded Iraq, concluded that federal laws related to torture and other abuses did not apply to interrogations uh, taking place overseas. Oh, we can't bring them here mm. and torture them. But as long as we stay outside of here, we can do whatever the fuck we want. Mm. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about the crimes. If you're delicate, uh, yeah. turn it off now. If you have kids present, what the fuck are you thinking? But secondly, you probably want to turn this <laughs> off. <clears throat> um. Manadel El Jamadi, one of the prisoners at Abu Ghraib, died, according to the torture memos, mm-hmm. uh, or the, the investigations done, after a CIO, a CIO, oh fuck, a CIA officer and a private contractor interrogated and tortured him in November 2003. The torture included uh, strapado hanging where he was hung from his wrists with his hands tied behind his back. Oh, God. Now, just imagine that. Your hands are tied behind your back, and then you are hung from those. So your arms are pulled up backwards behind your head, I assume, you know, pulling your shoulders out of their joints. Um. Yeah. Now, the U.S. military labelled the death a homicide, but neither of the two men involved were charged. That makes no sense whatsoever. Please, I'm sorry, continue. In 2004, Antonio Taguba, a major general in the U.S. Army, compiled a report on Abu Ghraib known as the Taguba Report, where he claimed one detainee had been sodomized with a chemical light and perhaps a broomstick. An Abu Ghraib detainee told investigators he heard an Iraqi teenage boy screaming and saw an army translator raping him while a Mm -hmm. female soldier took pictures. Like, he isn't going to hate everybody who's whatever for the rest of his life. Other photos showed interrogators sexually assaulting prisoners with objects including a truncheon, wire, and a phosphorescent tube. Mm -hmm. Uh, President Obama decided not to release the photos from the Taguba report, stating these pictures show torture, abuse, rape, and every indecency. He initially said he would release the photographs, but later changed his mind, saying that their release would put troops in danger and inflame anti-American public opinion. You think? (laughs) It still does. Now, 
as an American, Ray, yeah. how do you feel about the fact that Americans were raping and torturing and murdering detainees? And part B of the, my question, when it was discovered, neither they nor the people who gave the orders for it to happen were charged mm -hmm. and put on trial and sent to prison. Well, growing up post-World War II in the Cold War, you know, we're taught we're the good guys. Everything we do is right. If you're against us, then you're evil and you don't want anybody to be happy or free. And so you, you get that programming. But when you hear about this, obviously you, you're looking for some way to justify it or you're, and hopefully if that doesn't happen, hopefully you feel shamed by what your fellow Americans have done. And I guess this, and of course the fact that nobody was, nobody of note was punished then hopefully the scales begin to fall away from your eyes and every single thing that we've been talking about for the last three and a half years since we've started these podcasts is that it's always been the same. People want power and when they get power, they're willing to do almost anything to hold it and they think they can get away with anything and they people who empower feel like they can justify anything. And so you really can't believe what you hear, what you read. You've got to figure it out on your own. You've got to do your own digging and just don't be so naive. Don't take things at face value because 99% of what you hear is bullshit. So this is just one of the, unfortunately, more embarrassing and more painful lessons of that larger lesson um, that Americans aren't perfect. Even though we're told we are, we're just as human as everybody else. And and why aren't there riots in America over this, right? Why aren't there protests? That, why isn't there general strike shutting down the government until people are being held accountable and brought to justice for this? I I I honestly don't know the answer to that one. I it 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 happened over there. It happened to to them. They aren't the same color we are. They ain't the same country, the same culture, or whatever. I don't know. That is the only thing I could possibly think of. And and if that is accurate, if that's the real reason why, then that is sad as well. So just think of that, folks, when you hear about the atrocities committed by ISIS or the atrocities committed by the Syrian government. Remember the atrocities committed by the American government as well and how... Everyone got away scot-free, pretty much. Everybody um, does, yeah. Now, my point about all of this isn't just to bag on America, although that's always fun. It's that the, the leader of ISIS, al-Baghdadi, was a prisoner at Abu Ghraib and Camp Booker while all of this was going on. He was finally sent... After the atrocities came out in Abu Ghraib, he was sent to Camp Booker, and then at some point dates vary depending on which source you believe he was released from Camp Booker. Now, other prisoners were there with him also ended up being part of the ISIS leadership, Abu Muhammad al-Adnani, but he was killed in an airstrike in northern Syria in August 2016. So Baghdadi uh, was announced as the new leader of ISIS in May 2010 when his predecessor, Abu Omar al-Baghdadi, died when uh, Americans rocketed his house. <clears throat> and uh, so anyway, the other Baghdadi takes control, um, replenishes the group's leadership, appointing former Iraqi military and intelligence officers who'd served under Saddam. 
And mm-hmm. nearly all of these men had spent time imprisoned at Camp Booker and Abu Ghraib. One third of Baghdadi's top commanders, apparently, were, were held at Abu Ghraib and Camp Booker. So if they weren't anti-US before that happened, yeah, you can be damn sure that they were anti-US after that happened and no one was put on trial for it in particular. And then the Arab Spring happened, so which brings us full circle back to 2011. So um, we'll talk more about ISIS's involvement. And that is where we will have to end episode 15, Ray. All right. Sounds good. And I'll, I'll see you in a few days, buddy. All right. Hug. Did you want to read any reviews? No, we don't have any reviews. Oh, sorry. No reviews, people. Seriously. Like in a month. Bitches. There's been no new reviews in a month on iTunes. Obviously, you don't want your bullshit filter coffee mugs. Just get up to iTunes and leave us a fucking okay. review. A good review. We work right. hard. I work hard on this. Yeah, he he does. He really does. Because I steal me. from it. I wrote yeah. 6,000 I... words for today's <laughs> recording session. 6,000 words. When I meet you Aussies, the first thing I'm going to ask is, have you written a review? Why the fuck not, cunt? And then I'm going to run away. <laughs>